This fall, the Guggenheim Museum presents Turn It On, China on Film 2000 through 2017, a 10-week documentary film festival curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fen. Screenings on Fridays and Saturdays through December 16th. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash turniton. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. As part of the New York Film Festival's live events, Film Comment presented a discussion entitled The Cinema of Experience. Moderated by Film Comment Editor-in-Chief Nicholas Rapold, the panelists... Ashley Clark, I'm the Senior Programmer of Cinema at BAM uh, in Brooklyn and a regular contributor to Film Comment. Teo Bugby, I'm a film writer formerly of MTV News. Right now I freelance and I am currently writing with the New York Times and Vulture. Faria Zaman, I'm uh, primarily a documentary filmmaker. I used to write more, uh, but continue to do some criticism and contribute to film comment. And I also am the production manager for um, a company called Field of Vision. Discuss the formal properties deployed by contemporary filmmakers like Dee Rees to explore viewpoints traditionally excluded from narrative filmmaking. Here's their conversation. I feel like often there are panels about representation in industry or diversity in, in that way. And, and often uh, I'm curious just to talk about the actual craft of filmmaking and how that reflects you know, different kinds of experience and uh, the art and craft of filmmaking, really digging into films in that way. Um, and it really came to mind with a couple of great features we have in our, in our current issue of Film Comment, one by Ashley Clark uh, about Mudbound. Um, and which is also in the festival. I, I guess it's coming up. It hasn't shown yet, I don't think. Um, so definitely see, see that. And then another essay we had about um, immigration on screen uh, by Girish Shambhu, uh, who would be here if he could, but he's, he's not local. So those were kind of the jumping off points for s- some sort of discussion. Um, I mean, Ashley, maybe we can start with you just with just the gist of your, your, your Mudbound article. What struck you uh, about it? Um, I mean, for the filmmaker, it was just kind of a leap you know, to the next level, but otherwise. So has anybody in the room seen Mudbound? What one person seen it? So I'll, I'll be careful with what I say about it, but um, in short, it's the third feature by a filmmaker named Dee Rees, who debuted a few years ago with a film called Pariah, which was a semi-autobiographical coming out tale of a young woman in Brooklyn. Um, after that, she made a film called Bessie, about the blues singer Bessie Smith, um, and this is her third feature, and it's, as, as Nick says, it's an incredible leap in terms of um, scale and ambition. It's a kind of rollicking World War II era epic. Um, the scale and ambition of which you rarely see in, in Hollywood these days. It's been funded, well, it was picked up at Sundance by Netflix for 12.5 million, which made it the, the biggest purchase at the festival. Um, and there's a lot in this film. It's a, it's a love story, it's, it's a romance, it's a story of uh, friendship. It's about two families, one white, one black. Um, the black family are share tenants, so not share croppers. They, they work on the land, they pay rent to the white family who've also fallen on hard times. Um, and the film, both, you know, t- one member of each family goes off to fight in the war, one black, one white. Um, and the film kind of tracks all kinds of different things with many different, um, a multi-stranded narration. There are kind of, I think, six or seven uh, kind of voiceovers, which ordinarily is, is quite a difficult sell, I think. It's, I was brought up to, 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 to kind of believe that voiceover is a, um, 
kind of a lazy tool of filmmaking. Like you're, you're over-reliant on it if you haven't got the kind of visual acumen to parcel out information on a different way. But in this context, um, with the empathy that the film has, it's actually a really interesting way to, to convey the inner thoughts of, of repressed characters um, who can, simply cannot articulate their feelings because of the social conditions they find themselves in. Um, I saw the film two days after the presidential inauguration uh, in January at Sundance. Um, so there was a very surreal atmosphere there which has yet to dissipate clearly um, and won't until he's gone. Uh, and then maybe even after that for some time. But it's sometimes a cliche to say a film's as relevant now as it ever was or it's timely because racism is ever present in this country. It's not something that comes and goes. Um, but it really was quite something to see that film in that context. And I think it will spark a lot of discussion when it comes out, uh, I think on November the 17th. I'm happy to say that we're going to play it in Brooklyn on the big screen for, for two weeks at BAM. Um, I, I'm really, I don't have a, a stake in, in that game about Netflix and online versus cinema. I think access is the most important thing and the more people that see this film and are able to react to it and, and talk to each other about it, the better. Dee Rees herself said that um, the film Pariah was given new life by, net, by, by Netflix, so more people saw it because of online availability than would have done otherwise. At the same time, I think it's an extremely cinematic work. I think it is a completely different film in a room full of two, three hundred people on a big canvas. So if you do get a chance to see it here at the festival, and um, if there are tickets remaining, I urge you to do so. Um, so I'm Teo, and uh, one of the pieces that I think was relevant to this particular discussion that I've done, I haven't yet reviewed any of the movies that I've seen for this year's festival, but last year, uh, when the documentary Fire at Sea came out, I wrote a piece that also uh, temporarily had some changes in it because I saw it at the festival, then wrote the piece, which was before the election, wrote the piece upon the film's release, which was after the election, um, and then now revisiting it a year later, one of the things that kind of struck me was the way in which filmmaking changes over time as, it, as the audience changes, as time changes, and as uh, culture changes. Um, and so that particular movie played in three different ways for me, depending on the cultural context that we were in at the time. Um, and so I think one of the things to think about in contrast with Mudbound is that's a film that you describe as having specific narration, but uh, Fire at Sea was a movie that sort of sets you into a world without context. And there are films, for example, Zama, that are playing this year that confound in that way and which invite the audience to bring something to it with every viewing. I'm curious about your like how your aversion to voiceover shifts for particular films because I think I've noticed recently that like who's behind the camera question has affected how I look at both um, uh, when people bring in I statements into their writing as critics we, we were on a, a panel that was very focused on criticism earlier this week and had that question around like when do you feel it's acceptable to, to use an I statement and when I thought about it I realized that usually it's when I feel the need to sort of stake my claim as a person of a certain background. Not that that's the only way that your feelings have weight when you assess you know, other filmmakers who are people of color or subjects that are, but, but those are the times that I tend to do so. And then as a documentarian, um, some of the films that, you know, I, I, I personally 
have uh, such nerves about like making a personal film and, and doing that and when other people do that and does it become this really self-centered or or you know everything suddenly becomes about me piece on the on the part of the filmmaker but hearing you talk about Reese's film and then thinking about some of the work that I've really um, that has really resonated with me over the past year like I was thinking about Strong Island which just came out and is super personal and somehow still simultaneously about something so big through this personal story which sounds like sure that's what that's what you want every film to be but it's not often the case and um, it was a situation in which both the technique of voiceover the filmmaker appearing on screen in this very raw way and then also just this sort of genius editing strategy in which different parts of um, his story are revealed um, over time in a way that adds up you know it, it, it you don't have to be hit over the head in terms of the connection to larger conversation around racial injustice in America around who's seen as criminal in America but it emerges so organically and so emotionally because of how the filmmaker treated the work. Yeah, I mean, it's worth making the point that Mudbound is based on a novel by Hilary Jordan. So Deerees has made the specific decision to retain that novelistic yeah. multi-character structure. When I talk about narration, I think of it pejoratively when it's used solely as a narrative crutch. So to get you from point A to point B when you, you've, you haven't got the cojones to do it in a different way. And it, you're kind of falling back on that. But in this case, Dee Rees um, imbued the, the script with a lot of her own personality, her own family history, which was really refreshing for me, specifically because Hollywood is not overburdened with, with complex, multifaceted stories from an African-American perspective. Um, so it, it kind of enriched the experience for me. I, I saw it at Sunday, on a Sunday morning at Sundance. You know, it's, it's not the best way to see a film, particularly one of such emotional gravity. But, um, and I, th I think, it, I felt the, the multi-stranded voiceover was initially quite assaultive, hearing like three, four, five people. And, and over time, I got used to it. And I think it's used in tandem with the editing um, in a very impressionistic and interesting way. I mean, one thing that strikes me about all the movies yeah, that we, we've talked about so far, just... Mudbound, Fire at Sea, and Strong Island, is that they're all taking kind of formal risks to, to, to you know, to tell these stories, and, and sometimes pretty extreme ones, you know. And then I immediately think of something like Moonlight from last year, which, Faria, you wrote about for Folk Comet as well. And that's another movie that there's no guarantee that what it was attempting would really work. It's very ambitious to take even just one person's story and try to tell three ages of it and, and have that work, and then with three different actors as well, and have that all work. And obviously, it was you know, uh, well-received and, and artistically successful, but that just that came to mind as another thing. And I think that it continues to be part of this conversation as we, you know, like Ashley said, it's not like racism went out of style exactly, but um, I think that having it be so externalized in your leadership and um, uh, sort of current political climate means that people are discussing it more. And I think it's interesting and makes sense that Moonlight continues to be part of the conversation around um, race and film. And there's a, a num I think there's a number of ways in which that uh, movie is really radical, one of which is similar to talking about Dee Reese. I think that there have been significant portions of film history when there's this idea that if you tell a story about this people, it has to be done in this way. When you see movies that are by black people and about black communities, it's like 
only allowed to be epic if it's a crime story or it's only, you know, it, it, it has to explore certain things in certain ways. Well, and we talked about that the other day in, in the same panel when Boyhood came out mm -hmm. and Boyhood is widely read as a universal film, whereas Moonlight is about the black experience. Right, or, or the, the queer black experience. Yeah. And what I loved watching it is that it, ha it has this epic melodrama quality and that um, Barry gave himself permission to take these risks and these very, you know, Achir with a capital A sort of moves. And you, you know, okay, I'm not gonna use music that these characters who are growing up um, in a lower income community in Miami would definitely be listening to or that Western or white audiences would be able to read as what they would be listening to. I'm going to make a cinematic choice to do this here and this there. I'm going to cut this in this way. I'm, you know, having these sort of long reflective passages. I, it, it just, it reminded me that you should be able to make the choices that make sense for your film and that I think uh, people of color are 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 le sometimes less well received when they don't stick to the mode that people expect from those stories. I think one thing too with Moonlight, there was actually a fantastic series that was programmed when that movie was released here at the Lincoln Center. Um, I believe it was here, where Barry came in and basically showed a bunch of films that were inspirations for Moonlight creatively and artistically, which was a fantastic series, partly because. I feel like it's relatively rare with black filmmakers especially to have the opportunity to show the variety of their of their interests. And so that was like a real survey of international film. Like I remember being really struck watching uh, Hosa Sen's Three Times, which played before in, as part of this series with how much the structure of Moonlight, which to me when I had seen it, seemed so confounding was really inspired structurally by this earlier movie in a way where when you have such a broad palette to draw from, um, you're able to create a, a more original product. You know, you're able to like experiment more because of the depth of your own interests. And in talking about the film, he wasn't particularly interested in harping on sort of the political ramifications of making the film that he did. It's one of those things where it's still a radical act to be a black filmmaker who makes a movie that's about black, lower income, queer people um, and, and not have that be the sole, like what, what the film is entirely about. It's also just the experience of the life that they're living and giving that richness and depth. Um, it's, it's only inherently political because we live in an unjust world. Hard to follow that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> or or disagree or disagree with it. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's also. I mean, it's been an interesting year in in, that, in, in the same year that Moonlight can win Best Picture, um, but also in uh, I, I think another relevant film development in this year was the enormous uh, and very gratifying success of Get Out, mm -hmm. which is a movie that's you know it's not taking. Uh, you know, it's not something that someone would view as prestige, you know, drama, obviously. It's taking a genre that, that typically is, you know, regarded as sort of a B-movie kind of, kind of genre, not always taken as, as seriously. Um, and yet achieves something that's on artistic level, on par with what Moonlight is doing in terms of its ambition, and, and I think in terms of a, a lot of success, success as well. Um, but that's just another kind of movie I want to throw out there in terms of its formal, again, very formally exacting conceptualized movie. 
unlike Moonlight, is it is very pointed satire. I mean, I think right. there are moments in the movie that are created for people of color to be like, yep, that's, <laughs> that's what that is. Um, which is, I think, difficult to pull off with, with still a sense of levity and um, uh, like intellectual rigor. And Jordan curated a series at BAM, yeah. uh, similarly to of his influences, which kind of ran the gamut of you know, horror, thriller, psychodrama. He called it the social thriller. So it had everything from um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, that storied horror movie. Um, <laughs> I think Get, Get Out was, was a phenomenon for, for a number of reasons. It was very funny, very well made. It also came along at a, a particularly good time when I suppose that if you look at the election, the limits of white liberalism were being called into question and were a really big topic of conversation. And that was what the, the satire of Get Out really hinged on. And I think that struck a nerve. Yeah, I mean, it works on a genre level. And, and I think his influences speak to that, but also like how deeply disturbing it, the conception of the sunken in place is. Like it just, it's so, it's enormous. And it's, you know, it's really taken on. You know, it's, it, it has spread into the culture. It is it's kind of like a meme generator, but one with real gravity. One thing too with Get Out is like the the timing of when it was released, uh, beyond its political context, but it's also in February. There just aren't that many films being released at that time. It was like sort of struck in the middle of a desert, and so there was actually in what I think is kind of a rare circumstance for a film of Get Out's quality. It sort of arrived in the middle of a desert, so people could actually look at it and think about it and have the time to talk about it while without having to worry about the next amazing thing happening in 15 seconds, which can be problematic at a film festival, for example. <laughs> bit meta. But, yeah. <laughs> but it's worth also making the point that Jordan Peele had had many years to kind of hone his skills on, on TV and anybody who's watched Key and Peele would know that he had that kind of in his locker and that he was able to extend that to feature length. I think it was quite impressive that it didn't just fizzle out after yeah. 25 minutes or whatever. Um, and his skill is a, in creating suspense um, through those kind of subverting a whole bunch of tropes that you, you're used to was really, I thought, really, really skillful. Well done. This fall, the Guggenheim Museum presents Turn It On, China on Film 2000 through 2017, a film festival curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fan. This 10-week series presents independent documentaries by China's most daring artists and filmmakers, investigating the political, social, economic, and cultural conditions of contemporary China. Screenings on Fridays and Saturdays through December 16th. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash turn it on. Yeah, I mean, part of the movie that's the, the kind of wonder and the terror of it is immersing you in someone else's perspective or another person's perspective and, and point of view very consistently and and being able to experience everything through their eyes, more or less. Uh, I, I was just interviewing someone the other day about why that can be such a multivalent <laughs> experience, being in someone else's uh, you know, shoes for, for a while. Um, and, and often in movies, like the, the, the first person camera, not that that's used a lot in Get Out, but it's, it's, it can be, feel very constraining, but also very liberating and eye-opening. <laughs> just an interesting thing. I think the specificity of um, of gaze, I guess, is something that to me it has been striking in watching the movies that are playing at this year's festival as well as in watching Get Out. Um, where one thing I was thinking about in anticipation of this talk is sort of the role that 
movies sort of served for me at this particular moment in time, in which one of the pleasures of watching the films like Zama, like Mudbound, like Felicité, which I, I really loved, is being immersed in what feels like a coherent perspective as we sort of live in a time that feels increasingly chaotic. There is a real meditative pleasure and a real uh, profound calm, even when you're watching something that's very, very challenging, and, and maybe even more so when you're watching something that's challenging, that comes from being placed into a single perspective that's not your own, and a single perspective that's crafted, and a single perspective that wants you to gain meaning uh, and not haphazardly. I think that that's been very deeply needed. Um, and I find that this particular moment watching films has been restorative, I guess. Thinking about the dreaded D word, diversity. Um, I think there is hopefully a growing sense that we have to move just beyond on-screen representation. I think what you're saying about authorship is really important. Worth remembering that Barry Jenkins has made two features in, what's it, 10 years now? Yeah. Lucretia Martel, this is her first film in 10 years. So what companies like Netflix, Amazon, hopefully are doing, whatever you may feel about the release or distribution strategy, is helping to open the playing field and increase authorial representation and diversity, which is the most important thing of all. Yeah. I, I, no, I mean, that, that's, yeah, that's, that, I definitely agree with that. It's just, I'm just very struck by this idea of the restorative power, the idea of, the radical idea that maybe empathy feels good <laughs> and is a good thing for a reason, you know? And, and when that's possible from a filmmaker who isn't necessarily a person of color, so the Travis um, Wilkerson film that's in the festival, I think is a great example in thinking about perspective. Like one of the things I was really struck by that film is that again, it's, an, it's a personal film to a certain extent. Yeah, could, could you just sketch it out a bit for people? Sure. Might yeah, so um, this filmmaker uh, had, you know, always sort of heard hushed around his family that um, his grandfather was responsible for the murder of a black man um, in this uh, rural southern town that he grew up in and decided to actually investigate that further. And I think, I, I, I think and have definitely seen films in which it's, that becomes like, an, and so it's how I as a white man learned how to contend with my history and isn't that wonderful for me? Um, and I think the, the reasons why this doesn't do that are, uh, you know, some of it is just being a compassionate human being and a smart filmmaker, but there's some very specific technical or, or um, aesthetic choices that went into avoiding that, one of which is there are these very lengthy interviews with people who lived in the town during that period of time, and I really was struck by like the duration that, the, that giving, giving that person the voice to speak at length, rather than saying, and now it's time for me to take the mic back. There was a desire to actually listen and understand, and that I found that kind of restorative too. Like how to approach, this, you know, the story from a, 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 a privileged perspective, but not, you know, give the audience a sense that you're continuing to ride your privilege. I think too, uh, the term empathetic, I think, is an interesting one to bring up because honestly, like. I love Lucrecia Martel's movies. I would not necessarily describe her as the most empathetic filmmaker, but there's satisfaction in, yes, in that, in that level of technical. She's such a sharp analyst. Right, exactly, yes. That, that 
can create compassion even when it doesn't come from a place that's particularly warm? Well, it's satisfying to watch someone work through an idea. You know, whether that idea is empathetic or whether that idea is sadistic, which some of them in Zama are. Zama being a story about uh, colonialism. Um, and it's set in what is present-day Paraguay, but involves uh, Spanish colonists. Um, and yes, like it, it depicts a, a society that you, you don't respect or that you don't um, have any desire to see the character that you watch uh, grow or succeed or change. You know, you're just sort of, it's, you also don't necessarily understand what you're watching him do, but you have the feeling that she understands. And so part of watching, the pleasure becomes understanding her as she's making the choices that she's making. And so even if it's not like a directly, a directly empathetic theme or motif or purpose or whatever, moral, um, the idea that you can understand someone through their visual choices, through their oral choices, especially in that movie, um, is, is a powerful one. The question of empathy is on my mind a lot too, with regard to authorship. In a lot of the discourse around authorship, there is this idea that a person from a certain group is not authorized to make a film about another group. Um, but I think, I, I don't believe that. And I also think that empathy, curiosity, and compassion are really important, whether, on a, on, whether, whether it's clear or implicit on a formal level. You know, I always think of something like, Malcolm X's favorite film, which was Nothing But A Man, from 1964, directed by a white Jewish filmmaker. Um, Mike Malcolm X wasn't saying, a white man can't tell this story of segregation in the South. The film was made with such empathy and understanding um, that it transcends that. Uh, and that is, that's a question that kind of keeps bubbling along, particularly with something like Detroit this year with Catherine Bigelow, which I thought was not an empathetic movie and did cause me a lot of trouble. So I'm in an interesting position as a filmmaker because, and I don't think my work will always be like this, but thus far I basically have made a film career out of investigating small, regional, predominantly white, predominantly working class communities as a person who's like a first generation uh, Muslim, brown, queer woman. Uh, I didn't grow up in the States really. I lived here until I was nine and then um, grew up in India and returned to the States. And so I think for me it's partly about... Um, this idea of investigating what it means to be American in ways that I really don't understand, um, even though I sound and seem very American in a lot of ways. And I, I've also had to think, like, is there anything, it, what's, what's wrong, if anything, with me doing that? Um, because I simultaneously have a real sensitivity to, particularly the region that I'm from, Bangladeshi, and so many you know, white Western filmmakers go to Bangladesh or India or Nepal and make these films about like the abject poverty in ways that I, I think do lack nuance. But when people say, what's the difference? I say it's case by case. It's like a frustrating answer, but it's true. I'm like, I know when something's wrong when I see it <laughs> and when it hasn't, you know, like, I, I don't think that somebody who's from a different culture isn't inherently allowed to go explore a different one. Sometimes that outside perspective is really valuable. And for the work that I do, sometimes it's been difficult, actually. I'm making a film in Texas this year. I, was, I remember filming there on election day, and it was one of the just most uh, personally, um, deeply upsetting um, work experiences that I've had. And I 
thought, like, I have to keep doing this because otherwise I'm completely abandoning the idea that um, compassionate or, or, or like trying to understand is a, is a more effective and honestly like more right political tool than dismissing an entire pop, a population of people for beliefs that you don't agree with. I think maybe one film that's playing in the festival this year that might be interesting to talk about with regards to this discussion is the movie Felicite. Um, which I, I loved. It's by this filmmaker named Alain Gomez. Um, and he is French, Senegalese, and uh, from Guinea-Bissau. And he made a film in the Congo with a Congolese actress. It's set in the city of Kinshasa. Um, and the movie is so rich in its thematic complexity and how how it uses sort of these microcosm stories to open up its own ideas. And I think that there's one of the things that can make things that are appropriative feel so frustrating is like the simplicity of an outsider's ideas when they haven't challenged them. Um, or the first conclusion you reach is not the most interesting conclusion as it happens. And so I think part of that question of how people are able to tell the stories of others and people who, like others with the capital O, people who are different from them, is a, a matter of, of, of empathy but also of, of intellectualism and of rigor. The difference between making a film in the Congo when you don't understand the dynamics and the city that you're, you're occupying or that you're, you're filming in, you know, that's, that's the difference between a good and a bad film. You know, there's one, there's a really beautiful through line through Felicite that involves the music of that city. And one of the reasons the city was chosen was because it is one of the cities in, that, in, the, in the Congo that has a Western orchestra or that has, uh, of, this, of the citizens in the, the city, they, they formed an orchestra. And so there's a difference in that film between the music that's played by this orchestra that sort of like overlays on top of the story, and then the music that's sung by the lead character. Um, and it, it creates a tension in that movie independent of what the story is. And it creates a, an extra layer of, of meaning for you to glean from it and for you for you to work with, for you to project on. And so I think that that, that level of, of study, of rigor, of, of complexity is, is one of the things that makes it possible for people to tell other people's stories and might make them, might make those films more rich, you know? Like there's, there's a level that you can get if you're an outsider, but you have to be willing to listen. On, on that, the kind of difference between the image and the sound in that film is really interesting. And it reminds me of some of the things in this immigration essay that we have um, that, that uh, Girish wrote. You know, he, he talks about Chantal Ackerman's News from Home, for example, um, you know, where you have these images of the city. Uh, and uh, Ackerman at the time is sort of, you know, French emigre in New York. And you have images of the city. And, and what's on the soundtrack, though, are letters that she's reading from her mom. Uh, you know, basically asking why she doesn't write. It'd be nice if you wrote a little, you know, and, and, and all of this. And, and so you're constantly kind of having this double framing in, in your mind. Um, so I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting technique that does, does crop up. 
Ackerman also made one of my favorite uh, films that deals with colonialism. Like when you were talking about Zama, it made me think of Almayer's Folly, which is uh, sort of brings up a lot of things that we've been discussing, one of which is like being uh, from a Western background and telling the story in a Southeast Asian uh, setting and having the sort of compassion to understand the complexity there, but also that the interaction between you know, like a white colonialist uh, perspective and the country that they've infiltrated. And it, that film is so smart about letting the perspective shift over the course of the film. So so initially, it just feels like this oppressive hell because you you understand it from somebody who's coming in with no real understanding of, of where they've landed and, and, ha- and, and I guess is unlike, you know, what you hope for the filmmakers behind these works um, is unable to listen and have a deeper appreciation for what's there. And then by the end of the film, you completely understand this, this woman who sort of initially seemed like uh, a more passive voice, you're completely immersed in her perspective. And there are two films uh, in playing in the projections, Experimental Strand uh, at this festival. One is, they both kind of deal with, with similar issues. One is called uh, Le Faute des Fous, which is by Nariman Mani, who's a Algerian, French-Algerian filmmaker. Um, and it's a three-part, um, very long, interesting, non-fiction blend of, of documentary and narrative. I won't go into too much detail, I just recommend you see it, Le Fort des Fous. The other is a film called Occidental by uh, a filmmaker called Neil Balufa, who also, I believe, is, is a French-Algerian um, heritage. And this kind of does the complete opposite to something like Felicite is completely not in a realist mode at all. Um, it's hyper-stylized. It's set in a, at the Hotel Occidental in Paris. And two Italian guys who might be a gay couple, one of them might be a Muslim, but might not be. And the whole film takes place over 70 minutes. And you don't know anything. You get the sense that it's kind of poking fun of received notions of identity politics. And it's hyper-stylized and very thought-provoking. And so it's called Occidental, and I, I would recommend that as well. But I don't want to spoil too much. Sometimes the most, sometimes ambiguity and identity is the most radical thing. It's so playful and, and formally and, and narratively, and it's just incredibly funny. And it's nice to be, to be able to laugh at these, laugh with these issues mm-hmm. sometimes, because they're very, it's very serious stuff yeah. that, that it's talking about, but it's done in such an arch amusing way with a very singular vision you know from one frame if you know any of any of his his visual work you kind of watch one or two frames you know whose hand you're in and i find that very exciting as a as a film viewer the uh, aki karizmaki movie that's playing at the festival the other side of hope is another example of a film it's he's finnish and so it's uh, a syrian refugee winds up in finland and is trying to secure his status um, and as a, as a green card holder. Uh, and the movie, it's, it's this same sort of arch tone as is true of his other, his other work. It's, it's like a ca- cartoonish yeah, it's very, quality it's to it. Yeah, it's very bright primary colors, you know, like the sort of um, stilted frames that suggest comedy before there's actually a joke. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it is interesting to watch filmmakers who you wouldn't think of as especially political or who you wouldn't think of their, their usual topics as being political apply a style on top of you know, the issues that are sort of unavoidable 
Um, if you're living in Europe, you are aware of the migrant crisis. It's a it's a serious it's a serious issue. But how do you how do you approach it if you're a comedy filmmaker or if you're if your tone, if your style is arch, if that's your voice, then how do you apply your voice to, to a topic as, as dark as, you know? I'm just wondering, maybe you could talk about this a little bit as a documentary filmmaker, as somebody who doesn't just want to go in, film a situation, slap a bunch of voiceover over the top of it, and let you, you know, impart a moral lesson so the, the viewer has nothing to think about. How do you approach um, formal invention and ambiguity? And marrying those with serious hot topics, I suppose. And it's a it's a particularly good question now. Again, when there's sort of a, a heightened heightened emotions around politics um, and and sort of heightened awareness around some of the issues that we're discussing, that particularly in the docu documentary community, there's of course and this immediate feeling of like, okay, what am I going to do about this? What you know, how how am I going to respond to this? The company that I work for now, Field of Vision, uh, is a journalistic enterprise. We call, we call it journalistic cinema and hopefully put, place as much weight on sort of authorial voice and uh, artistic achievement as the issues that we're just discussing. But it was an interesting shift for me because I had always had this chip on my shoulder about how the way in which people conflate uh, documentary filmmaking, journalism, and activism. I'm very happy for activist filmmakers, but I don't want the onus of having to do that placed on me simply because I'm working in a nonfiction mode. As far as, so, you know, sometimes you see people respond in this way that is, I don't want to say that, again, that, that there's, that activists is automatically bad, but that's exactly the point. Um, making an activist piece of work or making an explicitly political piece of work shouldn't have to mean that it's inherently in a very uh, blunt mode <laughs> or sort of an on-the-nose mode or traditional mode. I just don't, I don't, I'm not sure how to answer how, how I do that differently other than like don't lose your sensibility simply because you have these other kind, you know, strong emotions. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to respond to that feeling. And I do truly feel like a heightened sense of anger and frustration in this past year. So like I'm um, making a film with my filmmaking partner, Jeff Reichert, um, that's about how Steve Bannon is a failed documentary filmmaker. And we decided that the best way to do that wasn't to make a biography of Steve Bannon, but to, but to reconceive of it as a biography of Steve Bannon if told exclusively through um, his films as the primary source material. And what does that say about him? And, and how does that do that in a way that is uh, only possible through cinema? And only, you only see his cinematic voice in this one way. It, it illustrates so much more about him and about um, his sense of leadership and his morals and how that is representative of uh, the larger White House leadership that's been in place. It's worth watching his films as well, if you, if you haven't. Oh, I haven't. No, Wait, I really? mean... There's, there's nine documentaries. They're all about two hours. I agree with you that it's worth watching. And actually, the, the film... The, we're screening a clip on October 11th in the amphitheater as part of a Field of Vision um, program here. And it was actually an adaptation of a film comment article that Jeff um, Reichert wrote. Uh, and I remember when he... We're making the film together, but when he first took on the article, I was like... You're gonna watch all nine of those movies, Godspeed. Like I don't wanna, I don't, can't, I can't do that to myself. And it's truly like being yelled at by a white supremacist via cinematic language. And part of what really inspired me to like do the film this way was I felt this sense that he had robbed me of my language and the way that I speak and make sense of the world. 
and perverted it to share these messages like about, let's say, um, how civil rights movements and uh, black power movements um, were uh, chaotic and evil. And I wanted to turn it back. <laughs> so I think that, you know, trying to, to think of, of ways to use the technique that makes sense for the film as opposed to simply the most direct way. Just think, want to take a moment to, to turn it over to the audience. Obviously, there's so many things we can talk about or could talk about, but I want to see if any of you have any uh, questions to add to the discussion. Hello, Anne Meredith, Swordfish Productions. I'm here visiting from Los Angeles. Thank you for everything that you've talked about. I'd like to hear you all talk more about Detroit, please. About Detroit, by oh, Detroit. Catherine Bigelow, which, yeah. um, for anyone not familiar, is an epic, epic restaging of an incident that happened in 67? I think 67, 68. There was, a, there was kind of un uprisings happening um, in, in, in response to police violence against African-Americans um, in, in Detroit. And that had been going on systemically for many years. And you know, this had happened in many major cities across America for a number of years. Um, this film is, is in that kind of reconstruction mode, that kind of Paul Greengrass, let's really ramp up the, the tension, violence, and torture and put, put the viewers in the shoes of these people that are being brutalized. And I found the film, it goes on for about two and a half hours. About an hour, about 90 minutes of that is full-on graphically depicted violence against black people from the police. Um, and I started to wonder what, what was happening. What, what was I watching? Why had this film been made? Was it designed as an intervention to, to get people talking? I couldn't, I, I couldn't make head nor tail of it, but of somebody who's been, you know, seeing videos of black people being killed by the police for the last decade going viral, I started to watch this film and I felt sick really sick and I did write about it I can't really articulate my feelings on it now I've tried to put the film out of my mind to be honest but I wrote about it for a, a website called Four Columns if anyone wants to read that um, but I just started to wonder what it was for. When that film came out there was a profile in the, in the New York Times uh, that was done of Catherine Bigelow in anticipation of its release that I don't to be honest recommend reading uh, it was an upsetting read partly because the writer of that piece also had sort of an axe to grind about. He had been the writer who, uh, in writing about, I believe Michael Brown described him as, you know, uh, no angel. Um, and so there was like a compounded level of uh, needing to justify why the piece was being written on top of why the film was being made. Um, fictionalized, heavily fictionalized film too. Because the, the, the journalist John Hersey, who at the time interviewed survivors, and collected a lot of primary evidence, made a guarantee to the people who he interviewed that uh, his, his book would not be optionable, they, that those primary sources would never be turned into a film. So Bigelow and, and Mark Boll kind of crashed in and said, well, we're gonna do it anyway. Commissioned some new research 50 years on. It was 67, because it came out this year and it was billed, it was marketed grandly as a chance to find out the secret uh, of what happened when in fact it relied heavily on on speculation and in this in this New York Times piece um, sh she's asked why she wanted to write the movie and she describes basically being past the script and her response is that I don't know that I'm the right person to make this movie and sort of was convinced by the people around her that she was and started in on the process from that point 
And I think that that is probably not the best way to come to a project like Detroit. When you are a filmmaker like Catherine Bigelow, and speaking too to our earlier point about wanting a film to communicate from a specific perspective, um, that lack of personal interest and that lack of personal perspective and that lack of time, research, you know, whatever goes into making a good Catherine Bigelow movie does really make a difference and, and matter. And so I think one of the things uh, with Detroit is, is that you're watching a movie that a filmmaker feels like they should make, not a movie that they wanted to make. And that it was so technically adept almost made it worse. It was a really, really well-made, um, a lot of those kind of action techniques and tropes that we've seen in her other films, films like Zero Dark Thirty, which are equally controversial for different reasons. Um, and, and I didn't really feel that sense of personal responsibility or connection. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the irony of it, that actually in many ways, the material is particularly suited to her own interests that she's had since the first short film she's made of the very conflicted feelings and agendas involved in depicting and watching violence. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's just a, an interesting addition to, to, that, to that work that she's been doing. I think we have to wrap up, or do we have time for one more question? One more question, okay, so anyone else? Uh, in the back row. Okay, so uh, this ties in with a lot of what you just said about um, personal investment, but I wanted to come back to the what we were, what you were saying earlier about empathy, and just confirm whether something even more fundamental isn't needed, which is just respect. That is, before you presume to tell another person's or another group's story, do it from a place of respect and not a place of ridicule, for example, or imposing some representation that maybe you think will sell, but that is not accurate. Um, so I just you know, was hoping that you could speak to that a little bit. And of course, that also necessitates the research and knowing what you're talking about, knowing what's going on. So that that's really... No, thank you. Any, any time a filmmaker of color makes a film, it's like an act of revisionism and reversal because Hollywood was, was absolutely forged in, in stereotypes from, from Birth of a Nation in 1915, which had full presidential endorsement, was screened at the White House. Um, there were black uh, African-American independent filmmakers like Oscar Misha and Spencer Williams making films for predominantly black audiences in segregated theaters. Um, but once Birth of a Nation came out in 1915, that set a very direct path, particularly for representation of African-American characters. And that, those stereotypes have been kind of embedded into you know, an, an extraordinary amount of a visual material, and it's still a fight to undo those and create new uh, visual languages um, for, for people of color. Broadly speaking, it's not just African-Americans. Speaking to specifically the issue of, uh, or the, the language of minstrelsy, one of the things that's interesting is seeing how black uh, artists have sort of switched that language or, or made plays on that language. Um, thinking of like Spike Lee and Bamboozled, thinking of just this year, actually one of my favorite works, Jay-Z did a, a great music video. Uh, one of the tracks off of 444. I was gonna say Atlanta as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's the best thing <laughs> Or um, yeah, even thinking if you are a patron of the uh, other visual arts, 
Um, the uh, Carrie, what's his name? Carrie James, James Marshall. Marshall. Yeah, the Carrie James Marshall exhibit that was uh, over at um, the Met Brewer earlier this year. There's a whole language built on top of not just undoing those stereotypes, but trying to dissect what they were trying to say and how you relate to them as a person who exists after their, their inception. And I think that that's been one of, one of the most uh, creatively rich in an odd way, ways that people have used that kind of negative and ridiculing language. The thing about any film is it has a, a finite, it's a finite period of time. So all of the choices you make matter because, it, you know, it, it may be that, yes, you've been respectful to some regard or uh, complex to some regard, but if you're only showing this one thing about this community, that's all that exists within the context of your one small piece of movie. Um, I remember making a, a film called Remote Area Medical that's about an Appalachian community and specifically around uh, the lack of healthcare in this community. And at some point realized like this film was so joyless and that wasn't my experience of being there. And that if you, if I just made a film that only showed people as the sum of their worst experiences, I was doing a, a, a real disservice and being really disrespectful, even if that's what the focus of the film is. And we made a lot of different choices throughout to, to bring in like, like that, that feeling of what is it actually like? What are people's lives like? And asking those questions is really important because you're so Focused. You have so much power as a filmmaker to focus people's attention on just one strand. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. We have an event coming up right up next, but thank you so much. Don't miss Turn It On, China on Film 2000 through 2017, a documentary film festival curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fen. The festival starts with Nightingale, Not the Only Voice, on Friday, October 13th, featuring an introduction by Ai Weiwei and discussion with the director Tang Danhong and Chip Rowley of Pan America. Tickets at guggenheim.org slash turniton. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.